Welcome to episode 21 of the Energy Balance Podcast. I'm Jay Feldman, and joining me again today is my good friend, Mike Fade. For those of you who don't know, Mike and I have been studying health and nutrition together for quite a while now, and we share very similar perspectives on health, which revolves around this bioenergetic view of health, which is what we talk about throughout this podcast and how you can get your energy back and recover from all sorts of low energy symptoms like gut issues and brain fog and fatigue and all sorts of other chronic health conditions that also result from lack of energy. In this episode, we're going to be talking about why you might want to drink less water and eat more salt, and then also how this affects blood pressure. So, of course, throughout the health industry, we're told that we should be drinking a ton of water and eating much less salt. And so we'll be talking about why you might not want to do these things, why these things don't necessarily improve hydration, and why they also end up causing a lot of issues that they're supposed to help. And this includes headaches and skin health and the idea that they, that drinking more water is supposed to flush out toxins or boost our immune system or reduce swelling or raise our metabolism. In reality, drinking too much water and eating too little salt will cause a lot of these issues, which we'll be talking about throughout this episode. And so we might actually want to be drinking less water and eating more salt. And we'll talk about exactly how much water and how much salt we want to be eating or drinking throughout this episode. And then we'll also talk about how we can address high blood pressure and why the general recommendations to drink more water and eat less salt might not be a good idea for high blood pressure. And of course, this is not medical advice, so make sure to consult with your doctor before implementing anything like that. And then, of course, it's also important to mention that this is all relative to how much water you're already drinking and how much salt you're already eating. But we'll be talking about why the general recommendation to drink more water and eat less salt really might not be a good idea. To check out the show notes for today's episode, head over to jfeldmanwellness.com slash podcast, where you can take a look at any of the articles or studies or anything else that we reference throughout today's episode. And if you are dealing with any low energy symptoms, whether that is brain fog or fatigue or gut issues, or maybe you are dealing with hypertension, high blood pressure, or any sorts of other issues related to high blood pressure, or if you're dealing with any hormonal issues or you're, you're not sleeping well, if you're dealing with any of these issues, I'd highly recommend you head over to jfeldmanwellness.com energy, where you can sign up for a free energy balance mini course, where I'll walk you through the main things that you'll want to do to support energy production. And this includes nutrition and other factors in our lifestyle, like stress and exercise. And then also the things that you want to avoid that block the process of energy production. And I'll also explain why producing energy and having enough energy is really the key to fixing all of these symptoms and conditions. So to sign up for that free energy balance mini course, head over to jfeldmanwellness.com energy. And before we get started, I do want to mention that due to some technical difficulties, Mike was without his microphone again today. So sorry about the audio quality, but it should be better next time. And with that, let's get started. So the recommendations the the general recommendation to drink more water is probably the most ubiquitous recommendation the most common agreed upon recommendation there is as far as health and nutrition go and it's in many ways a, a baseless recommendation that isn't supported by uh, research there's actually very little research into hydration because as far as research goes there isn't there aren't very effective ways to measure hydration or at least generally accepted ones but yeah, the even the the very general, uh, like the government recommendations or just the colloquial rep- recommendations to drink eight cups of water a day, or you know it gets way like one ounce per pound of body weight. Yeah, of yeah, on the extreme Some end, crazy I mean, thing like that. Right, right. Yeah, normally you know you might hear half an ounce per pound of body weight, or even yeah an ounce per pound of body weight, which is a ton of water i mean that that could be you know 15 to 20 cups of water a day or more and yeah there's it's one of the things that's recommended the most for a plethora of different reasons so you know we're told to start our day off with a glass of water we're told to have a glass of water before we go to sleep we're told to have a glass of water before each meal so that we don't eat as much and you know between each meal to make sure we're hydrated and before we exercise and during exercise and after exercise and we're told all sorts of 
claims about this that it helps to flush out toxins or it boosts our immune system or it boosts our metabolism uh, and it helps us eat less, which of course is supposed to lead to fat loss. Uh, there, there's some other other reasons too that are given, like that it improves skin health or it'll reduce headaches, uh, it'll reduce swelling. And of course, water has zero calories, which from the mainstream view makes it the ideal type of food <laughs> because calories are bad. Um, and starvation it, is good. Right, exactly. <laughs> and and then a lot of these are, are circling around the ideas, the idea that water makes us hydrated. And that even is not necessarily the case uh, because there are a lot of different factors that affect whether we are actually hydrated, whether our cells actually do have usable water available to them. But yeah, I mean, it's it's one of the most commonly common things to be recommended. And yet I would say one of the more detrimental. And, you know, you and I did experience this ourselves. I mean, we we always had water bottles with us, like huge glass water bottles that we would refill several times a day and would drink it all the time. Especially, you know, like if we were Before hungry, it was even a fad. Right, right. Uh, yeah, and, and it would, you know, you're supposed to drink water if you're hungry, you're supposed to drink water if you're thirsty, you're supposed to drink water if you're tired, like wh- whatever the reason is, whatever your issue is, just drink more water. And yeah, there's there's really not research supporting it. And not only that, there are actually a lot of issues that can come with drinking a lot of water, drinking too much water. And this has to do with, with mineral balance and our blood volume and circulation and blood pressure. And so we'll get into all that, but yeah, it's, it's, I would say for me that it was that drinking less water was actually one of the most impactful things as far as my health was concerned. It helped a lot with digestion. It helped a lot with, uh, digestion and bloating and also with being able to eat more, which those kind of go hand in hand where if you're not digesting your food, well, you can't eat that much food, but it also helped me to learn to listen to my body a little bit better and, and figure out when I was actually hungry versus thirsty or whatever it is. But yeah. So, so I, yeah, I don't know if you like want to talk about your experience with it too, but um, I know that that was a major thing that we had both changed when, you know, for a period of time when we were drinking a ton of water and then now we'll, we'll talk about what we do now, but definitely drink a lot less water. Yeah. I mean, I just remember just peeing a lot. Just drinking a lot of water and then peeing it all out and then drinking a lot of water and peeing it all out. And I guess sometimes I feel like I would get some type of stress response from downing a lot of water. Um, Just typical like flash, I guess you call them hot flashes, I I guess, but not necessarily in like a postmenopausal sense. Um, But yeah, it's a, I mean, since now at this point, I don't really touch water and I haven't really had any hydration issues. Um, it wasn't, for me, it wasn't like a, a make or break thing. It's not something that I directly noticed as getting rid of some, some of the harder to digest foods. But um, yeah, I definitely, <laughs> I don't, I don't think any of the claims around you needing X number of water to stay hydrated and things like that are based in any relevant physiology when you look at how the processes underlying everything and how they go. That's not to say that you don't need fluids or you don't need water. That's, that's not what we're saying. It's just that in order to stay hydrated, it is not necessary to drink tons of water every day. And there's more to it than just drinking water. Yeah. And there are better options than just water, which we'll talk about too. And, but I, I'm glad that you mentioned the the peeing a lot and having like really clear pee, because that was definitely something that we experienced, like just kind of going, like it, it was kind of normal to us, but that's really not normal to be peeing more than a few times a day. Uh, and to have like really clear pee. And, and as you're saying, it is kind of going right through you. And that does actually come at a cost. And we'll we'll talk about that too. But yeah, that we don't need to have entirely clear urine. That does not mean that we're actually more hydrated. It just means that we're drinking excessive amounts of water. So yeah. And, and so from there, there is this other side of water and hydration, which is salt. And there's a lot of parallels between the recommendations for water and salt where there, of course, the general recommendations for salt are that basically less is better. And some recommendations are from, you know, large organizations like the American Heart Association. Yeah. American Heart Association and um, so like the American the, Medical Association. Yeah. And the USDA. Yeah. They're like all the di- dietary guidelines and things. And yeah, they'll recommend really low amounts of sodium 
intake per day as little That's as actually some of the therapeutic diets like the dash diet mm. are are created to lower salt for heart patients i mean there's other things besides uh salt intake in the diets but a lot of the even in hospitals right now when you have heart patients they have something called cardiac diets and a cardiac diet will have low saturated fat more polyunsaturated fat low salt um so yeah, so and even in renal diets, they have different restrictions on different electrolytes because of kidney disease and things like that, um, which in that case makes a little more sense. Uh, but in, in a lot of the other diets, they, they artificially lower salt. And you can talk to patients in the hospital when they get these diets, and most of them will tell you that hospital food is disgusting and that, I mean, some of the elderly populations don't have taste buds. So sometimes you'll hear the craziest things on that with things that they say <laughs> taste good, like even some of the medications that all of us taste or have tasted before you're like, Oh, that's disgusting. And they're like, wow, this is, this is delicious. So, <laughs> but, and for most, in most cases, people really loathe the diets because there's no fat, there's no salt. There's very little sugar, a very bland diet. Yeah. Yeah. And we've talked about why the whole idea of saturated fat being the issue is, is nonsense and cholesterol being the issue as well. Uh, and yeah, salt is, is another one of those things where we're told that having too much salt contributes to high blood pressure, which contributes to heart disease. And so if we want to protect ourselves from heart disease, then we want to make sure that we're not having too much salt. And of course, if we have too much salt, that also causes dehydration and leads to all of those same issues that water is supposed to cure. So if you know, you're having headaches or you're swelling or you're having you know, dry skin, then of course, having less salt is, is what we're supposed to do. But in reality, the, the same the same things are the case where having too little salt is actually a major issue and less is definitely not better. And yeah, and, and these this relationship between salt salt and water is, is actually really key for understanding why we don't want to drink more water and why we don't want to eat less salt. So yeah, maybe we could start there. So I guess the best place to start would be number one, what is hydration on a cellular level and on a tissue level? Um, and it's more than just water. There's multiple factors that go into there or go into that. So there's ratio, there's ratios of electrolytes, uh, in respect to what's inside the cell and what's outside the cell. And then there's the protein structure of the cell. And then there's the, the water itself. And so all of these factors interact with each other to maintain hydration of the cell and maintain structure of the cell. So electrolytes are positive ions or negative ions of specific minerals. And so in this case, we have the main ones, which you have intracellularly, the main, the biggest main one is potassium. And then extracellularly, the biggest main one is sodium. Um, and then you can also have, then the other ones you have is magnesium is more intracellular and then extracellular you have calcium. And so those are the, those four electrolytes or have relationships with each other where calcium and magnesium sort of have antagonistic functions with each other to some extent. That's the general, um, that's the general, I guess, basic idea that you're taught when you're in school, you're learning any of this stuff. And then sodium and potassium have some a antagonistic relationships or, uh, or reciprocal relationships with each other inside this uh, on physiology in general. And so what, you need more than just water to have hydration. So when the, when the electrolytes and the proteins of the cell and tissues and things like that interact with each other, and, and most studies look at the, when, the, when we're talking intracellular or extracellular, intracellular is inside the cell and extracellular is outside the cell. And so the general idea is the plasma membrane of the cell is what's separating those specific compartments. Whereas if you're extracellular, you're on the outside of the plasma membrane. And if you're intracellular, you're inside the cytoplasm of the cell, which is basically like the interior components of the cell inside the cellular membrane. And then the membrane itself, and this is, this is all theory, but the membrane itself separates uh, those electrolytes. And then there's transfer across the membrane with specific proteins. Um, and then when in other theories, you have the actual structure of the cell itself is dependent upon water. And the interaction of water with the electrolytes and those proteins gives the waters, give the water structure or create the gel state. Um, so in both theories, regardless of which theory you subscribe to, you, you need 
not only electrolytes, you need proteins and you need, or not only water, you need electrolytes and proteins as well. And then a very important point to point out before we get to, um, a very important point that's, I guess, central to the entire idea of hydration is that even in, even in the gel state theory or the plasma membrane theory, you need energy to maintain the proper concentration gradients or maintain the proper ratios of electrolytes inside the cell and outside the cell. In the plasma membrane theory, you need a, a proper amount of ATP, which is produced by uh, oxidative phosphorylation mostly, um, in order to run the so-called membrane-based pumps that, that control the gradients inside and outside the cell. Um, and then in the the uh, gel state theory of, or the water, the gel water theory, uh, what you essentially need is you need proper energy production of the cell to maintain a specific charge uh, of the protein structure and the water in general so that they interact appropriately and maintain the proper shape. And so in both theories, when you have a, a breakdown of energy production, you get swelling of the cell. And that's because the cell has been unable to maintain the proper gradients between electrolytes from the inside to the outside or in the gel state theory, just the proper electrolyte interaction with the water and structure. So now we have a, a much bigger picture where essentially to maintain proper tissue and cellular hydration, you need your electrolytes you, or you need your water, first of all, but you also need electrolytes and you need the proper proteins and amino acids. And then you also need the proper um, cellular energy metabolism. And so in that case, in this, it would be, basically sugars or glucose um, and fats to some extent. So basically there's multiple factors that go on here. And it, with this situation, just dumping water into the system doesn't solve the problem of if you have dehydration. Um, what it, you, you're, you have a whole bunch of other requirements going there. And when you start taking in an excess amount of water relative to what your body actually needs, the process of eliminating that water is a bit wasteful to some of those other requirements. And if you want to go into some of that stuff more specifically then, or if you want to talk about any of the things I touched on, go ahead. Yeah. So, so when we're talking about hydration, like just to, to take a step back, we're talking about water inside the cell and the amount of water that's in there, but it's not quite as simple as just having enough because an excess amount is also an issue. And Again, as you talked about within this this idea of, of structured water within the association induction hypothesis where the protein, the charged proteins of the cell structure the water. Basically, what you're talking about is that the water inside the cell is not the same as free water that that you know you would be drinking. It has it's a, in a structure that's more like a gel. And that gel, like the the ability for that structure to exist requires energy. And so it's important to make this distinction that just because there's enough water in the cell doesn't mean that it is it, that the that it's structured properly it can be free water in which case you have swelling so when we're talking about hydration we're talking about basically the right amount of water in the cell and then also it in in the right form and as you're saying this also depends on the electrolytes the balance between sodium and potassium and calcium and magnesium and it relies on having enough energy and so the point of explaining this or the point of of illustrating how nuanced this picture of, of cellular hydration actually is is to is to illustrate how ridiculous it is to think that if we just drink water that the hydration issue is solved and there is a hydration issue and, and people kind of cite this all the time that as we get older, we get more dehydrated and that's true. But the issue is not just that we're drinking too little water all, all this time. And, and that's the problem. It's, it's that this hydration re relies on all of these other systems, which are all directly interconnected. So many factors outside of the water that we're taking in affect our hydration. And so, so that, that's kind of like the the first point that's important to before you continue for sure. example if you have a you don't have enough electrolytes and you still take in water you you are you will may not be hydrated or in conditions where you have things like heart failure 
for different failures of the vascular system in older patients, they have enough water in their body, but the body is not basically holding on to that water appropriately. So you get massive swelling in the legs. And in some cases, people have so much water in their body and it's free water. It's not water in the gel state within the cell that mm -hmm. when you touch their lower leg, you can actually push water and it will leak out of their skin and, and really pathologic state. And this is because of an energy breakdown on the cellular level. They have a complete energy breakdown on the cellular level. And even in things like sepsis or what people are talking about now with this whole, this whole respiratory virus thing going on, when you go into something like acute respiratory distress syndrome, which is why, why they usually put you on a vent, your body has enough water. But the, basically, you have such an inflammatory reaction that the water is third spacing or it's moving into areas where it shouldn't be because the energy the energy is broken down and you basically can't maintain the water in the right compartment. So you can have you can have enough water on board. And what you see in patients when they get very sick and they have sepsis or trauma or things like that, you'll run a lot of fluids into their system so that they can maintain an intravascular fluid. But what winds up happening is he keeps dumping into the third space. So you get patients who are extremely bloated with water, super full of water, to the point that you press their skin and water comes out. And it's because of an energy deficit, because of the massive inflammatory cascade. So you can have an, en an energy deficit or you can have electrolyte deficit. It's not just putting water into the system. And I just, I didn't mean to cut you off. It's just to give examples of what you were just specifically talking about and why, where it can be important. Yeah, no, it's a perfect example. I mean, I think swelling and edema, like, like you're describing, in all of these very major disease states are a perfect example of, of this concept that water does not equal hydration. And, and again, as we're talking about, the energy component is so important here. So, for example, if you have a lot of if you're eating a lot of polyunsaturated fats or you've got a lot of endotoxin production from your gut, that's going to cause more swelling and edema and less actual hydration. So. Yeah, so so the point being then, okay, as far as water and salt are concerned, how do we like how much of those should we be eating in order to make sure that we're hydrated and how do those actually affect hydration? Because yes, having enough liquid or water is necessary to be hydrated, but that doesn't mean that we want to just drink more water, especially plain water that isn't coming from food or, or other things. So so let's let, let's break that down a little bit and talk about what happens when I'm actually going to start by talking about what happens when we don't have enough salt because it makes what happens when we don't have enough water more clear. So mm -hmm. the reason why this is important is because salt and water kind of go together and like salt will kind of attract water with it. And so when we, we have a certain amount of salt that's circulating in our blood all the time and that allows us to maintain the right amount of blood or, or blood volume and that allows for proper circulation and, and a well-functioning system. And when we don't get enough salt, it does two things. One, it reduces the concentration of salt in our blood or sodium in our blood and will also therefore reduce the blood volume. And that causes a couple of major issues because it means that there is not enough blood, like there's not enough of this transport system to, to transport nutrients and, and waste and things throughout the body. So we have a lot of there are very intricate mechanisms in place to prevent this from from happening, basically, where if we don't have enough salt, we don't just hang around with less salt in our blood. Our body adapts to it, which is part of the whole issue with the sodium and hypertension or, or high blood pressure recommendations, which the idea being that if you take in more salt, that means you have more salt in your blood, it means you have more water in your blood that increases blood volume and causes high blood pressure, but in reality, that isn't the case. And, and the reason is because we adapt. So when we have too little salt, it reduces the blood volume and the, the sodium concentration in our blood. And we have this entire system in place to fix that. And this is basically within the RAS system, the renin, aldosterone, angiotensin system. And what happens is, is basically our body stops our kidney is always excreting a certain amount of sodium. And so when we're eating less salt, it starts excreting less sodium and it holds on to sodium. And it, this helps to increase the blood volume. Another thing that it does is it causes vasoconstriction, which means that it's, it causes the constriction of the blood vessels, which then also helps to raise our blood pressure. So that way 
basically you can we still have the same circulation that we would have had otherwise so again to summarize here when we have too little salt it lowers our blood volume it means we have less circulation our blood pressure drops and the salt the amount of salt in our blood drops and so this renin angiotensin aldosterone system the ras system is activated and this causes us to hold on to salt which helps to prevent the the salt in our blood that concentration from falling too low and this um and then the other thing that it does is it causes vasoconstriction to help to bring the blood pressure back up mm-hmm. and this is really helpful and there's it's a very helpful adaptive response that needs to happen if we if we're eating too little salt but it comes at a cost and that cost ends up actually causing a lot of issues in the long run it ends up leading to further dehydration in the long run it actually ends up leading to higher blood pressure in the long run which is a whole purpose that people are eating less salt in the first place and a couple of the reasons for that a couple of that those costs are that when our kidneys are holding on to sodium they aren't releasing the or excreting the same amount of sodium as before instead they they replace that sodium with potassium and also magnesium so when the system is activated when we have aldosterone the the whole rest system is is activated it leads to the retention of sodium and the excretion of potassium and magnesium and because magnesium and potassium are really important for keeping ourselves hydrated and relaxed when we over time have lesser amounts of potassium and magnesium it leads to further vasoconstriction and contraction and dehydration or swelling which are kind of the same situation because the water is not usable and that cause then ends up actually contributing to high blood pressure and increased sympathetic activity in, in the long run so that's kind of one of those main effects and then the there are some other effects outside of the the loss of potassium and magnesium and one of them is just the direct effect like the direct stress effect of the activation of these systems so you have the rest system activated you also have some norepinephrine that'll be released uh when we're having too little salt and it's a pretty significant amount too and these will basically put us under under stress but they also directly cause they directly essentially cause dehydration and contraction within uh within the cellular structure so which it's kind of the same as any other stress or inflammatory pathway where in the short term it works out and it's helpful but in the long term it ends up causing all of these all these problems basically the opposite of of all the things we're trying to solve by lowering salt intake or or having enough water And I think it's important to note here that this doesn't, what we'll get to essentially what, what you want to do is it's not that you want to have an excessive amount of salt because ratio and amount relative to other things are important, but at the same time, severely restricting salt. And unless you have a significant, like you have a, uh, a serious medical condition that specifically needs salt restriction, like some like severe forms of kidney disease, or if you have issues like brain injuries that or uh endocrine issues with syndrome of inappropriate antidiuretic hormone um or addison's disease things like that uh i don't think it's addison uh i think um it's not addison's it's a uh diabetes insipidus addison's is uh adrenal deficiency right 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 so i was gonna say salt is actually helpful for addison's yeah salt is helpful exactly so diabetes insipidus or syndrome of inappropriate antidiuretic hormone then playing with salt and things like that are a little more dangerous but for your average person being healthy salting the taste is i mean eventually it's pretty much what you want to do here uh what you what you crave and overloading salt I mean, there are some things that are helpful with athletes and things like that, but I mean, that's, these are different scopes. I just want to clarify where the context of what we're talking about is and the importance of salting the taste and things like that. And then to, to further clarify some of the things that, that you said, when you don't have enough salt, then your body tries to retain salt. And to retain salt, it uses the RAS system and specifically aldosterone. And aldosterone at the kidney causes the retention at the kidney specifically causes the retention of sodium, but in doing so causes the wasting of magnesium and potassium. Mm -hmm. And so over time, since magnesium and potassium are the main intracellular electrolytes, if you continue to waste magnesium and potassium over time, there is a possibility that you can get cellular dehydration because you don't have electrolytes, those main electrolytes 
in the cell to maintain the proper uh, hydration status of the cell. So having adequate electrolytes of sodium, potassium, and magnesium, all three of them is actually extremely important. Restricting any of them, unless you have a severe problem, is because um, the other thing is, is it's not just about intake. There's different there's different things that can affect potassium and things like that. So in different diabetic states, or if you have a lot of cell damage, then you can have a lot of potassium leak into the bloodstream. And some of these things, like in cancer or chemotherapy regimens, and some of these things can have detrimental effects. Or so there's other things that can affect it. But for generally healthy people, what you're looking at is it's important to make sure that you're having a combination of all the electrolytes and having a deficit of sodium in this case specifically. And the reason we're talking about sodium in relation to drinking is because when you have an excess amount of water in the bloodstream, it dilutes the amount of salt that you have. And so it will cause you to basically get unload the excess water and try to, and try to retain the sodium that you have. And so you can cause some wasting in that, in that sense as well. Um, so that's why we're, it, the salt and the water sort of move together. And anytime you learn in physiology about the different electrolyte systems or fluid systems, you learn that salt and water sort of go together. So where salt goes, water goes, for, and, and things like that. And diluting and water can dilute salt, and then you have, you have different uh, effects from there. So basically, yeah, you want to make sure that you're having adequate amounts of salt, not an excessive amount of salt. I mean, there's different loading protocols for athletic events and things like that. That's beyond this, like beyond what we're talking about here. This is just general health stuff. And then diluting salt too much in the blood with an excess fluid intake that doesn't have any electrolytes and doesn't have any other minerals or things like that actually has a detrimental effect. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just to, to go back real quickly to what you were talking about with the intracellular versus extracellular electrolytes, the, when sodium and calcium are entering the cell, that's what leads to what, what's typically considered excitation. But that's also basically the process that occurs in cell death and dehydration and a lack of energy when, when it's occurring in, in excessive amounts. And so that's why that's kind of what you're getting at, which is why uh, potassium and magnesium are so important and why we don't want to be excreting them uh, in place of sodium. So, which again, it's through that adaptive pa- backup pathway, which which is not helpful. Um, yeah. But but yeah. So as far as so, so yeah, the the point that you were making is is that having as far as water goes is that, and this is why I started with what happens with low salt intake is because when we have a lot of water, then that basically mimics the equivalent of having too little salt, and all of the same all of the same things apply. It, it causes that same stress response. That leads to the same loss of potassium and magnesium. It le- leads to the same eventual cell swelling and inhibition of, of cellular energy production and dehydration, which is the whole thing that you're trying to fix in the first place. And the effect of this response is, is rel- it's pretty noteworthy. So when people talk about the fact that water increases our metabolism, and they've shown that in research that it causes energy expenditure, and that's true. But... The way that it does this is through this stress system. So what basically happens is our is our body senses that we've reduced our salt concentration and it activates these stress systems. It includes the RAS system, but there's also adrenergic uh, effects and increase in, in sympathetic activity. And that has been shown to be responsible for that increase in energy expenditure, that supposed increase in metabolism is basically just stress. And they've shown in the research as well that when you drink water that has the same amount of salt as our blood, basically the same concentration and it's the osmotically balanced, you don't have that same effect. You don't have the same stress and you don't have the same increase in energy expenditure, which basically is showing the, the, that it's it's causing, like the dilution of the salt is what leads to the energy expenditure and the stress is what leads to the energy expenditure. So it's not actually a good thing, even though it's supposed to be, even though that's why one of the reasons that we're told to drink a lot of water is that increases our metabolism. But in reality, it's just putting stress and it's just putting stress on our system, which is not helpful. Yeah. Another thing that I think people should know is that when, a and, and this is directly what they do in the hospital. If you are going to transfuse somebody, um, any type of fluid and they mm-hmm. have, they're healthy, they're just dehydrated. You actually give fluid with salt and they call yeah. it normal saline. So there's a certain concentration of salt within the water. It's 0.9%. 
And then in different disease states, say you have too much sodium in the blood or anything like that, you actually give a hypotonic solution. Or if you have, in this case, you have your, you have a lot of fluid in the, um, you have a lot of fluid in the tissues, your tissues have a lot of fluid, then you give a hypertonic solution so that the solute in there can pull the fluid out of the tissues. So they know they, the, in medicine, they know that certain concentrations of electrolytes are important to function. Yeah, so, I want to explain. I mean, that's a really good point. I just want to translate that for people who don't know what hypertonic means and, and all that. But basically, you're saying that when somebody is swollen and edematous, meaning they've got a lot of excess water in the wrong places, you're saying that they actually give people solutions with extra salt, like beyond what they would normally give a saline solution so to the, reduce so, the edema. The, I think... So in different situations, so if you have trauma and things like that, they actually give different uh, solutions that contain, sometimes they'll give albumin as well. If they have really low uh, intravascular fluids and they're, they're going into a lot of third space because albumin has a very strong osmotic effect in, in terms of keeping water in the intravascular space. But there's different things like osmolite or, or I think it's plasmolite, things like that, which are high, um, they're high in electrolytes and things like that to keep the to pull the fluid out of the tissues and put it in the back in the intravascular space and then for they give hypotonic fluids uh basically if you want to put fluid back in the tissues you give very hypotonic fluids uh which don't have a lot of salt because it won't stay in the intravascular space and then you basically just yeah 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 so they they know this in hospitals doctors know any ER doctor or, or ICU nurse or things can tell you about all these different things because when you have patients who are crashing and they're, they're, all their fluids are going to a third space, in order to pull those out of out of the third space, you actually give hypertonic fluids. And depending on what's going on with them, you know, if they're, what's going on with the kidney function, different things like that. But yeah, that's, I mean, it's known. Yeah, yeah. And yet we're, we're told to just drink all, all of this this plain water. And we'll talk about this a little later too, but we're not against having liquid in our diet. It's just much better if it's packaged with some of these electrolytes that we need and enough sodium and some things that might be helpful for supporting energy production as opposed to having to make... A, it's almost the equivalent. You know, People will talk about white sugar being so detrimental because of, because of a lack of nutrients. nutrients. Yeah. Exactly. And plain water is basically the same thing. And in the same way that you need those vitamins and minerals for... Uh, for us to use sugar properly, we need vitamins and minerals and energy in order to properly use water. So yeah, so it's definitely a systems approach. There's a lot more than just just drink water and you're fine type of thing. There's a lot of different factors that go into it. But the thing that's nice is the body has a very uh, sensitive and adaptive system that basically tells you when you're thirsty and basically you're just thirsty like, or when you need water, it's like you're just thirsty. Right. Yeah. And, and of course we are the only, like the only animals that will force ourselves to drink water and yet animals in nature are entirely fine and they aren't, they aren't dying of, of not having forced themselves to drink too much or drink enough, you know? Uh, and, and, and there's reasons for that. They've actually, so there's this, there's this misconception that by the time you're thirsty, you're already too dehydrated and you've already basically caused issues based on your, your dehydration and that's not the case like the the research has shown that that our uh our sensitivity to thirst and hydration is actually pretty uh, pretty spot on or it, it's pretty sensitive and so we know that we're dehydrated with enough time to make ourselves thirsty or, or we know that we're like we get thirsty ahead of time like we're able to tell within a pretty small range that even if we're getting slightly dehydrated or if we need more liquid, which of course makes sense. I mean, that's the whole point of thirst is to tell us that we need more liquid. It wouldn't make sense if that happens too late to the point that we just needed to always force ourselves to drink water. And yeah. and again, this is shown in animals as well, where that they have very sensitive, uh, sensitive thirst signals and that allows them to stay adequately hydrated. And the same is true for salt as well, where we're pretty like our, our signals that tell us how much salt we need are pretty sensitive and are pretty good at telling us how much salt we need. So if you're craving salt and when you have a little bit of salt on, I don't know, potato chips or, or 
pizza or whatever it is that you're eating, not to say that those are necessarily ideal, it that might mean that you need more salt if you're finding that when you eat those things, you really like the saltiness of them. And you can get that salt in, in better places. Yeah. So, yeah, or the the main recommendations that come out of this from our end are instead of forcing ourselves to drink a lot of water or instead of preventing ourselves from eating enough salt that or as much salt as we want to eat, we can actually tune into our own cravings for um, for salty things and for liquid and allow that to dictate how much water we drink or how much liquid we drink and how much salt we eat. And just to mention real quickly, as far as salt goes, it's important to mention the research as well that the the ranges that they give in the recommendations of, of having under 1500 or under 2000 milligrams of sodium or even a little bit higher have been shown to be related to increased risks of cardiovascular disease and even all cause mortality compared to higher ranges of, of like 4000 to 6000 milligrams. So that's the point being that if we were to eat a lot more salt than we're told to eat, we'll actually be much better off. And as far as thirst goes, this kind of brings us to what we were talking about earlier, where it's not like we don't want to just drink plain water. We don't have to just drink plain water. A lot of the other places that we would get liquid have a lot more of the things that we would need to actually stay hydrated. Do you want us to talk about a few of those? Well, I think it's, I mean, things just like tea or juice, um, milk, uh, different things like that. And I think it's per- important for people to, to realize, cause there's a lot of people that say, well, you're, if you, you have to drink water to be hydrated, like you can't juice won't hydrate you. That doesn't count towards your hydration. Like I've seen that before. Yeah. And I, I think that's completely false. I mean, just, this is a personal example and it's anecdotal, but I barely drink water my main fluid intake is from juice and I haven't had any dehydration issues or anything like that. I don't think ever. Um, so, but the point is, is that juice and juice and, and mainly juice or milk and things like that have a lot of not only minerals, but, uh, but vitamins and sugars and things like that, that actually aid towards a greater hydration status than just pure water. Um, and even things like coconut water and things like that have, have, and, and, and this is why, this is exactly why things like Gatorade have been promoted for hydration for athletic events and things like that. They have different electrolytes on top of having sugar in them to, to basically provide hydration and some energy for the liver and things like that, which is extremely important. So if you're like a, a juice or milk or teas and with some honey in them, all things like that are, are great for hydration. Coffee. Um, coffee. Well, it's, Coffee does have a diuretic effect, but it does, but that doesn't necessarily mean dehydrating effect. Well, that's true. But and yeah, in general, those types of drinks are, are usually fine. Um, I don't think it's necessary to drink, you know, 160 ounces of water a day or anything like that. Um, but I do think it's important to, when you're thirsty, drink. And I do think it's important when you want something sweet, have some sugar in the form of fruit or ideally fruit or juice. If you want something salty, then, you know, have some, I don't know, potato chips cooked in coconut oil or mm-hmm. have some, some type of meat dish with some salt on it. I don't think that, I don't think holding the salt is necessarily a good idea. I think choosing, uh, I think choosing like natural sources of salt, basically just not the iodized, highly processed salt. So Mediterranean sea salt, Celtic sea salt, Himalayan salt, any of the, real salt, whatever it is, whatever salt you like to use for the most part, I would say just, you know, as long as it's, it's not a ton of iodized salt, which may or may not have its issues and things like that. Right. Um, so well, and just basically follow your cravings with those, with those types of things to, to a large extent. And the other thing with that said, I think it's important to recognize that sometimes when you're craving, you know, that, that pizza or those, I don't know, those Lay's potato chips, you might be craving the salt and the carbs and the fat mm-hmm. in those foods. And so it's not to say that you shouldn't have potato chips. It's just to say that if you have a craving for a particular food, then it's probably those components of the food that you're craving. And then in that case, you can probably find better quality versions of those foods. So if you had some type of potato chips, I, don't, I haven't seen them in a while, but like Jackson's Honest, 
which is, you know, you can, they have regular potato chips with sea salt and then they're cooked in coconut oil. That would probably be a better option than doing something like Lay's potato chips, which is, I think, either safflower or soybean or whatever oil. So making better choices based on your cravings, I think would be a good idea. And that includes your drinks. If you're thirsty, that includes your salt intake, that includes sugar, any, any type of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Boulder Canyon is another brand that has potato chips cooked in coconut oil. Although for whatever reason, the chips cooked in coconut oil from both of those companies are getting harder and harder to find. I don't know if Jackson's Honest is still even Yeah, I haven't seen chips. them for a while. Yeah, uh, yeah the, and they don't show them on their website either, I don't think. Um, I have still seen Boulder Canyon, and you might be able to find them online also. So, but Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and I, I want to mention a couple things too as far as water recommendations go. Which first is that just because plain water isn't necessarily ideal or we don't want to be forcing ourselves to drink water or the idea that more water is better is is not really true. Just because of those things doesn't mean that we never want to drink water, uh, especially if you're sweating a lot, if you're really active, if you're you know playing a sport or you've... You and if know. you really want water. <laughs> right. Or if, yeah, or if you just want water. Yeah. But there's a difference between thinking that any craving or thirst or hunger is wanting water versus actually wanting water. So, and if you are going to do water, then mineral waters would probably be a better choice than just your generic, whatever water. Yeah. 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 Um, or at least like, uh, well filtered water without fluoride and whatever else they're and chlorine you know, and all that. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's a whole other, t- <laughs> a whole other <laughs> yeah. topic. Um, yeah, and I and I do think in talking about cravings and, and hunger, again, when we're told that anytime you're hungry, you should be drinking water, it's so instilled, and we can believe that we're always thirsty. And sometimes also it takes an an adjustment period where you're used to a lot of water, and so and you might even feel like you're always thirsty, but that sort of that can be from dehydration, but that doesn't mean that that hydrating yourself with water is the best option. So again, the as you had mentioned, juices, smoothies, teas coffee can all be decent options additionally water should be in like liquid water is in all whole foods whether it's meat or vegetables fruits so those those are also good sources that do count towards your water intake i I mean there's this idea that they don't count but it's literally water so have you ever seen dried food fruit versus regular fruit. I mean, it's a massive difference and that's all water. And it does make a difference. So we were talking about structured water earlier and this separate phase of water. And there's something to be said for the water being integrated with the food that we're eating as opposed to it being separated from it. And so you can see this with animals too, where animals that are eating like cats and dogs that we have that are eating dried food often have uh, dehydration issues where they aren't drinking enough water to make up for that. But if they're eating wet food with the like water still as a part of it, then they don't have that issue, and that's why you know kidney issues are super common with with uh, with those animals that are that are having dry food. So again, same thing kind of thing goes for us is that we want to be getting our water from from our food. We don't want to be eating a, a diet that a, a diet of food that is lacking water and then trying to make up for it with plain water because that that doesn't work. It leaves us still dehydrated and with all those issues we talked about earlier. Yeah. And as far as salt goes, uh, you had mentioned a few different ones. I just wanted to say also that for people who are concerned about like heavy metals or too much iron, uh, the you know any any non-iodized salt that um, that is either just like a plain white sea salt or the Morton's canning and pickling salt are good options as well. Without without, I think it's important. I mean, if you can't, then that's fine. But without some of the additives that they put in different salts and things like that, I think are important. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if yeah, and, and that was that, of course, isn't like the focus here, but but it is important to mention that there are a lot of additives like anti-caking agents that are added to salt and um, and iodine, as you said, which we can get enough of from food. So, uh, especially if you're eating a pretty decent amount of salt, it's uh, the iodized salt is probably not the way to go. So, yeah, getting getting salt without those things is important, and it's pretty clear in the ingredients what's what's in your salt. So, make sure you just take a look. Yep. Outside of like eating and, and like outside of salt intake and water intake, as we were talking about earlier, there are other factors to consider when it comes to hydration. One of those is energy, and then another one is the other electrolytes, the potassium, magnesium, calcium. 
And for people who are concerned about their blood pressure, these are definitely important things to consider where the solution is, we would say, is not to drink more water and eat less salt. But instead, if you do notice that when you have more salt, it leads to an increase in your blood pressure. First off, that can be a temporary effect. So try increasing slowly, going for a short period of time, and then see if it if it comes back down. Another thing to consider in that instance is how much of those other minerals you're getting, the potassium, magnesium, and calcium. So too little of having too little of any of those minerals has been implicated in high blood pressure. And they are a major concern as well because when you have that de- that dehydration in those cells and the potential swelling that comes with that may come first but but the dehydration the the excitation and contraction that occurs from having too little potassium and magnesium or too much calcium in the wrong place which happens from eating too little ca- uh, calcium that leads to uh it leads to basically constriction and also leads to vasoconstriction when that's happening within uh our our uh, arteries so that in many ways, a lack of those minerals can contribute to or cause high blood pressure. So that's something to consider there is that making sure you're getting enough of those minerals, ideally from food, and all the foods that we were kind of talking about are higher in those minerals. So if you are having water, mineral waters is probably a, a decent choice, but also juices and fruits and cooked vegetables are, are all good sources of, of those different minerals and dairies is another good source of, of all of those minerals. Then also other I mean, like root vegetables are are also pretty high in those things. So as long as you're getting, so getting enough of those is important to consider there as opposed to just reducing salt intake. And then of course, the energy production side of things where a inhibited energy production or lack of energy production or swelling that occurs in response to stress and rest system activation and sympathetic activation, which we talked about earlier, happens when you have too much water, too little salt. That also leads to cellular contraction and excitation and leads to vasoconstriction, which leads to high blood pressure. So that that's just another thing to consider is that all of these factors that affect energy production play a pretty major role in blood pressure. So that means that making sure you're getting the right types of fats, avoiding PUFA or polyunsaturated fats and favoring the more saturated ones, getting enough protein, getting enough carbs, making sure you're digesting your food well and you don't don't have a lot of endotoxin production, all things that we've talked about before on the podcast, but it's just important to mention that that those things all make a pretty huge difference in regulating blood pressure. And of course, the this just goes to show that the picture is a lot more complex than just water and salt and also that having more water and less salt is not an effective solution. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of there's if you're having hypertensive issues in general, I would say there's a lot more going on than you're just eating too much salt. Right. Um, I would say you, you either have an endotoxin issue, some vascular damage from oxidized uh, polyunsaturated fats in your cholesterol, some maybe some type of latent infection. Maybe you're not having maybe you have an overactive uh, adrenergic system in an elevated RAS cascade from some sort of either uh, electrolyte imbalance or some type of uh, chronic stressful situation or a lack of adequate uh, nutrients in the diet, vitamins, mineral nutrients, uh, vitamins, minerals, macronutrients. There's a lot of different things that can go on besides just, oh, you're eating too much salt. I think that that's, and I don't think controlling your blood pressure by lowering salt is, I mean, lowering the blood pressure, sure, it might help in the short term, but I don't think that that's going to make or break the situation mostly in with most heart disease patients, they put you put them on these diets, and their heart disease doesn't get solved. You know, none of these things go. You go on antihypertensive medications, but you still die of heart disease going forward. You still have a heart attack. You, I have. There's patients who are on heart disease medications, blood pressure medications for years, low salt diets, this and that, and they still have strokes. They still have heart attacks. They still get heart failure. Maybe it just stop stops it for a little while. The other thing I want to point out with some of the blood pressure stuff is. I've seen some people who uh, are on their blood pressure medications and while their blood pressure is high, they actually function better than when they lower their blood pressure with the medication. And so then the question then is why is their blood pressure on the higher side? And so in certain circumstances, maybe they have some narrowing in certain uh, arteries or uh, that to the brain or things like that. And they, uh, and they have some minor occlusions or blockages 
it might be possible that the blood pressure is being raised to make sure that there's an adequate amount of blood flowing with nutrients and oxygen to those tissues. Now, I'm not saying having high blood pressure is a good thing either. But my, my point being is that I would guess that it is a um, adaptive system and it's elevated for a particular reason. And so the question is never, the question is always, why is it elevated? And what is causing it to be elevated? Do you have vascular damage? Okay, so what's your vascular damage from? Are you having an energy defect? What's your energy defect from? You have hypothyroidism, Well, what's your hypothyroidism from? And the question is always why and what is going on? It's mm -hmm. not just, oh, you have high blood pressure. Okay, lower your salt, take the statin, um, and then take these blood pressure medications. We'll control them in this range, then you'll be fine. Because a lot of people do that, and they still die of heart disease. They still have strokes. They still have heart attacks. They still have this or that. And their endpoints in certain studies may get better, and they may prolong things, but they still wind up suffering from those diseases. And I see it regularly, very regularly. Patients are on oh yeah, I've been taking my low press or my metoprolol for years. And I, they're still coming in and they still have heart disease. They still have high blood pressure. You take them right off the medication and the blood pressure is just as high. It's never solved. It's right, just a right. maintenance. And so I would say that this low salt diet is the same thing. It's essentially a maintenance protocol that doesn't solve the underlying problem and might possibly make it worse in the long run. I mean, we don't have... It, we have some associational studies. I don't think they've ever done studies to show what happens if you give people adequate salt on their <laughs> primary out outcomes. That would be against the whole theory. But yeah, there's there's a lot more going on to the picture. And it's these little these little maintenance things that you're told to do: drink an X amount of water every day, and and don't and lower your salt intake, and don't eat any saturated fat. And some of these things are actually like extremely counterproductive in general and, and i think that there's a lot lot going on to the underlying picture besides those things and it's important to assess those before before you just take some random i don't know random uh band-aid solution yeah yeah and and in talking about researching higher levels of salt they have looked at um the fact there there the association between having between about four and six thousand milligrams of sodium being associated with the lowest incidence of cardiovascular disease, which is like two to three teaspoons of salt per day. And of course that's, you know, two to three times or even four times what they're, what they're recommending. Um, we should be eating for cardiovascular disease. And that's another really ridiculous thing when it comes to these medications is that we've talked about how a lack of salt activates all these stress systems and that, and we've also talked about how those stress systems lead to, high blood pressure. And this is known in conventional medicine because the blood pressure drugs work to block that stress system. They work to block different aspects of the rest system or yep. different aspects of our sympathetic nervous system, which the rest is, is part of. Yep. And in order to lower blood pressure, yet the recommendation to have less salt activates all those systems. So it's, it's like two directly opposing recommendations. And it makes no sense. And it's, it's because... The, this idea of lowering salt is based on is almost for it's forgetting the fact that our bodies are adaptive and when we have low salt there are these these systems that get activated these these stress systems that get activated to raise our our blood pressure and cause us to retain salt yeah. and as you were saying high blood pressure much like high cholesterol or high blood sugar is a protective adaptive response so when we're not using sugar properly then we end up with high blood sugar, which which ends up basically kind of forcing forcing sugar to be used in a sense. And we, we have a similar adaptive effect when we have high cholesterol, which basically when the cholesterol is not being used and, and is not being converted to downstream steroids that are protective, like pregnenolone and progesterone and the different androgens, then our cholesterol levels increase and these you know cholesterol is also helpful helpful for immune or function. if you have an if you have an infection and your cholesterol is elevated to basically block the toxic products of the infection right. so then in these cases lowering these things does not solve the problem they are symptoms so well not lower, only does it not only does it not solve it but it's directly blocking our natural adaptive response our natural intelligent response which is actually there to protect us yeah. So or, it's worse. It's worse than not fixing it. Or it's a byproduct of the system protecting itself. 
You, for right. example, with high blood sugar, if your cells can't oxidize the sugar, then and loading up on sugar is not going to solve the problem, therefore leaving in the bloodstream. And there's different mechanisms as to why that's going on. But the underlying processes, those are symptoms. That, and the thing is, is they are recognized, as you said, the high blood pressure situation is recognized as an activation of the stress system. Almost every single drug that you take in is either inhibits the adrenergic, uh, the autonomic or adrenergic system or, or sympathetic nervous system, or mm -hmm. it inhibits some part of the RAS cascade. So they know it. So it's known that it is elevated with high blood pressure. So then the real question is, is why is the cascade elevated? What are the things that can activate that cascade? Infection, uh, electrolyte abnormalities, overhydration, chronic stress, all of those things activate those systems. So it's not, okay, let's just inhibit it with a drug. It's okay. So what is the underlying process that's leading it to be too, like highly activated? Because that's what it is. And I, when you have the patients who are most affected by this, the, uh, the coronavirus pandemic, the reason there's the patients who are most affected are heart disease patients or obese patients and things like that, because they already have an overactive uh, RAS system and adrenergic and sympathetic function. That's why they're in the shape that they're in. That's why they're suffering those symptoms. And so when the virus, if there's a virus, which most flu viruses hijack that system, if there's a virus that hijacks that system, then obviously they're going to be affected. They're the prime candidates. It's not, it doesn't, it's not surprising that that's the case because those are the pathways that are already being hammered on a regular basis. You have some sort of virus, which a lot of viruses, a lot of flu viruses and respiratory viruses bind into those uh, specific systems. If they're already overactive, it doesn't take too much to push them over the ledge or push them over the cliff. And that's, I think, what you see going on. But right. uh, essentially, and we talked about what the specific causes are. And most of, and these these high blood pressure, heart disease, hyperlipidemia, whatever it is, systems are all are, are along that same pathway. I mean, metabolic syndrome is one classification of diseases that go together. And they may have underlying causes that are different amongst other people, but they're they are groups there. It, it's not like it's that wide of a range of possible causes for them to, to be the cause or to be the underlying problem. Yeah. Yeah. And, and in talking about this rest system and these sympathetic systems as uh, the main components that increase blood pressure in an adaptive way to stress, a, a good example here would be exercise where we know that exercise increases the activity of our sympathetic systems and it makes sense that increasing blood pressure is a response to this because that helps to it basically helps to like force the transportation of of nutrients throughout the body when we are exercising and it causes vasoconstriction in the right places to distribute the blood to the right places and yeah. and um and yeah you get stress induced vasodilation via nitric oxide and the the point being that it's that just like high cholesterol and high blood sugar this is an adaptive response to stress and to talk about the high blood sugar one a little bit too is when you're not using sugar effectively and you have inhibited glucose oxidation which is insulin resistance basically then it makes sense to have elevated blood sugar that's then going to be stored as, as fat as well as an adaptive response it, it's it's adapting towards this stress state that in a way that will allow for better survival so and and another point to consider as far as blood pressure is concerned is that all of these stress systems work to to lead to this kind of this hypertension, which if we think of what hypertension actually is, is is like hyper meaning like an excessive amount of tension of of like contractility. Yeah. Right. And yeah, it's talking about the blood vessels being contracted in an excessive amount, and that's what leads to the high blood pressure. Well, all of the things that support energy production work to to release that tension. So we talked about potassium and, and magnesium and the excretion of sodium and calcium from the cell. So that, so when blood, when energy production is working efficiently, when we have a high metabolism, we basically remove the sodium and calcium from the cell, which helps the cells relax. And then we also have the production of CO2, which is the main vasodilator, meaning that it's the main thing that leads to the relaxation of, of our blood vessels. So the best way to lead to that relaxation is by restoring energy production which again we you know we've talked about that's that's why we focus on that is is because that is this this main driver of of proper of of maintaining health
All right, I hope you enjoyed that episode on why you might want to drink less water and eat more salt. I know that we did mention the coronavirus a little bit throughout this episode, and if you wanted some more information on how the coronavirus affects us physiologically and what kind of things we can do to support our immune function and protect ourselves in the case that we do get the coronavirus, uh, take a look at episode zero of the Energy Balance podcast, and I will link that in the show notes. We took a pretty deep dive into the coronavirus and, and all, of the, all of that information. So take a look at that episode. If you did enjoy today's episode, please leave a review or a like or a comment or a five-star rating on iTunes. It really does a lot to help support the show. To check out the show notes for today's episode, head over to jfeldmanwellness.com slash podcast. And if you are dealing with any low energy symptoms, I know we talked a little bit about high blood pressure today and how you can address that, but there are a lot of other symptoms that are caused by a lack of energy, and this includes all sorts of hormonal imbalances or uh, excessive cravings and hunger or a lack of energy and fatigue, tiredness, not sleeping well, or all sorts of gut issues, whether that's bloating or just general gut inflammation or weight gain. So if you are dealing with any of those symptoms, I would highly recommend you head over to jfeldmanwellness.com slash energy to sign up for a free energy balance mini course where I'll walk you through the main things that you'll want to do to maximize your cellular energy, which will help to resolve all of those symptoms. So to sign up for that free energy balance mini course, you can head over to jfeldmanwellness.com slash energy. And if you are dealing with hypertension or any other symptoms like that, and you'd like a little bit more guidance, you can head over to jfeldmanwellness.com slash call and sign up for a free call where I'd be happy to offer you some more specific suggestions to help resolve those symptoms. So again, to sign up for that free call, you can head over to jfeldmanwellness.com slash call. And I hope you guys enjoyed that episode and I will see you in the next one.